the end of the world as we know it on this episode of Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. It's also the next to the last episode of season two, and it is part two of a thrilling two-part series about the end of time. On this episode, you'll learn four truths that matter most when it comes to talking about the end of time. You'll consider whether or not phoenixes might be real, and I reveal for the first time ever on this podcast my view of the end of time. To learn more about how our eschatology should shape our daily Christian lives, take a look at the book, Eschatological Discipleship by Trevin Wax. That's Eschatological Discipleship by Trevin Wax, published by our friends at B&H Academic. You can learn more about this book and many other outstanding resources about theology, apologetics, and the end of time at bhacademic.com. That's Eschatological Discipleship by Trevin Wax. Take a look at bhacademic.com to learn more. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. I'm Timothy, and once upon a time, I wrote a book about the end times, and that's something I will never do again. And I'm Garrick, and as one who used to open Timothy's letters that he got from fans of eschatology, I would agree with his statement. (laughs) And so speaking about things that uh, feel like the end of something, anyway, maybe not the end of time, but the end of a particular toy, let's talk about Toy Box Hero. This is the last Toy Box Hero episode ever, because we're going to do something different in the weirdness type of things in season three. So we've got, this is the last one ever. What do you have for us today? Okay, I'm bringing my youngest, my newest child, who just turned two years old, and she's got lots of new toys being kind of post-Christmas, and one of her favorites is a new kitchen, like a, a play kitchen with all types of fun Items, so I had a lot to choose from. I'm going with one of her favorites. She's marked it with her teeth. There's teeth marks all over this, and that is, as she would say it, a knife. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what it is. It's a it's a a giant silver, well, painted silver, a giant wooden knife that she uses to uh, cut vegetables and fruits and stuff that are held together by uh, Velcro. So there it is. I'm bringing a knife to a toy fight. Yeah, there you go. And I don't think that the knife can survive. And here's why. Because here's what I have selected by our second child, and that is Fox oh, the Phoenix. Yep. Fox the Phoenix. Yep. Now, and this is not only just Fox the Phoenix. This is the overpriced one that they have at Universal Studios. Therefore, it must be more real because Wait. we bought it at Universal is there, Studios. Is there one at Universal Studios that isn't overpriced? Is no, there anything no. at Universal? Exactly. Is there anything at Universal Studios that is I, not way overpriced? Fun story. I once showed up to Universal Studios and it was, I don't know, it was like 80 degrees outside, 70 degrees. And some unexpected nor'easter blew in and it got down to like 40 degrees 
real quick, and so I had to go buy like a sweatshirt or a jacket from some store there. Pretty sure it cost me like eight hundred dollars. There's no way that yep. Fox the Phoenix can be defeated, even if the knife were real. So even if right. the knife were real, right. Fox the Phoenix. I mean, Fox the Phoenix can just cry on himself. Yes, and so yep. <laughs> just yep. or she. I don't know if she, which is. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Well, what if this were actually a wand? That just looked like a knife. What? What about? Uh, it doesn't like, like Hagrid's umbrella. Yes, yes, that's got a wand exactly. in there. Yeah, except so I, except wielded by like a real magician. Though. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so well, yeah, yep. Tough to beat Fox. N- neither even. Yeah, I wouldn't even want to. Right. I mean, every time Fox shows up in the books and the movie, it's like such a moment of pure joy. Yeah, I wish Phoenixes were real. Fox is probably my second or third favorite Harry Potter character. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luna Lovegood is up there toward the top. I really like Luna Lovegood. Yep. And uh, Fox has to be up there pretty close with Snape. I like Snape, I Luna, yep. and and probably Fox after yep. those. Was it the Shepherd of Hermas that talked about the Phoenix? Who was it? Which apostolic father was it? Oh, I there mean, it is. Well, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's so bizarre. I think it's in Clement. I think it's in Clement, but it may be elsewhere as well. I mean, it was a fairly common belief. People really did believe in the Phoenix back then. And I just like to think it was probably real. I was about to say, what if, right? Like like the Dodo bird. You have no idea. Yeah. There's there's all sorts of creatures that get discovered all the time. We're calling it here, folks, that there really are Phoenixes somewhere that they will discover someday. So there's four truths about Christian eschatology that we get from the early creeds, right? And Timothy, we can just go back and forth on this one. Number one, that it's centered in Jesus, where the creed says that he ascended to the right hand of the Father from which he will return. I know I've said this before in different contexts, but I will never forget the words of one of my early church history professors who reminded us, if Jesus does not return, then you and I are not saved. If we leave out his return, right? His, so, so he dies, there's the resurrection, the raising. Let's not forget the ascension because he goes to be with the Father. That's kind of important, but it's important also because he will return for his people. And if he doesn't, if we leave that out, like you said when in your early days of pastoring, then you've truncated the hope of the gospel. And we see that as a this contrast because this shoegazing mentality, so to speak, this looking inward, it doesn't get us anywhere in terms of hope. All we get is more of us. And I think what we know as human beings deeply is there has to be something outside of us. We know this. That's why all we get is a well of despair when we have this introspective existentialism of staring within ourselves. And so that's why it's really important because of the fact that we're looking outside of ourselves. And I would say this, I think that ultimately, if we get focused on a particular plan for the end of time, like one particular chart, Mm. so to speak, of here's how it has to happen, we're ultimately doing this inward looking rather than an outward looking. We're just doing it in a different way. We really are because of the fact that one of the things we have to remember is that it does have to be centered in Jesus. Another way of putting it is the future has a name and that name is Jesus. The future has a name and that name is Jesus. And it has to be 
Jesus-centered, not centered on a particular plan for the end of time. It's not going to produce hope otherwise. But not only that, so the first thing is, it's got to be centered in Jesus. But the second thing is, it's accompanied by a physical resurrection of all humanity. You see that in the creeds, in the resurrection of the flesh. That's what it says, the resurrection of the flesh in the Apostles' Creed. It's accompanied by a physical resurrection. So we have a Jesus who will physically return and we will be physically raised. What we see in those together is that our hope is not amorphous. Our hope is not looking in us, but it's also not looking beyond us in a way of some sort of an amorphous, hazy spiritual hope. It is a physical hope that we have. It is accompanied by a physical resurrection of all humanity. I think of Jürgen Moltmann. Now, there's a lot of things Jürgen Moltmann's theology that he doesn't get right. But my theology is pretty deeply shaped in certain ways by Jürgen Moltmann. And he says, when all hopes have died, there comes the wave of the future like a spirit of resurrection into dead bones, creating hope against hope. And I love the way he describes it in very physical terms. It's a spirit of resurrection, but it's into dead bones. And that produces hope against hope. It is a physical resurrection that we await. And this is going to seem counterintuitive, but another part of this eschatology of hope is that that Christ's return, it results in justice. All throughout Scripture, we read, and not only do we read, but I would say that all of us experience this personally, this lament, this confusion, this questioning of why God does it seem that you are hanging out in the heavens while things are just going so terrible here. Why does it look like the bad guys are winning? And we, those who love you, who desire to serve and obey you while we suffer, well, where God is your justice? And God says, here it is. Because when my son returns, he's not returning just for a reunion, right? Just to be with his pals again and to kind of get us all together so we can experience this eternal weekend at his house. He returns to judge. The, the creed says he returns to judge the living and the dead. That gives us hope because in it, we will see the ultimate vindication of God setting things right and defeating for good sin and the devil and the evil that has distorted and corrupted his good creation. And I think the last thing that we'd say on that, so we've got it's centered in Jesus. Not only is it centered in Jesus, it's there's a physical resurrection, there's justice. He comes as judge. And the other one is that those who are in Christ are raised to a fellowship, to a communion, to a community. This is not just about you individually. You see, that introspective existentialism looks inside of me and just says, okay, I'm going to look inside of myself as the world burns around me. That's what I'm going, and I'm going to be feeling fine because I look in myself. But rather, we are raised to community. We are raised to fellowship. The communion of the saints and the life everlasting is what it says in the creed. And that's so important for us to recognize. The end of time is not about us individually, me getting what I want individually, me having my happy time in the sky individually. It is that I am raised to a church, to a fellowship, to a communion, to a community. And I would add, I talked earlier about discovering 
Herman Bobbink and how that has impacted the way I frame eschatology, even, even though we disagree on some of the specifics. And we are raised to a community and to borrow a title of a book written about Bobbink and his essentially his view of creation and eschatology, we are restored to our destiny. If I were to sum up Bobbink on eschatology and, and what just moves me, right, what stirs my soul, I would say, according to Scripture, right, this world will neither continue forever, but it's also, it won't be destroyed. It won't be replaced by something totally new, right? The, the, the world will not burn in the sense that so many people talk about it. Instead, this world will be cleansed of its sin. It will be recreated or reborn, renewed. It will be made whole. And that's all of creation of which humans are a part. The salvation of God's kingdom, which includes communion with God, which includes communion with each other, as Timothy said. It's both a present thing since Christ came 2,000 years ago, but it's also a future consummation, a, a future glory. The kingdom of, of God has come in Christ's first advent and is coming in all of its fullness with his return. And in the meantime, in between those times, there'll be many who fall away, right? Many who do not trust in the coming Christ, but in Christ, the human race, the world is saved and all creatures will, when he returns, all those who who have placed their life in his hands, their trust in the salvation that comes only from his name, we will then live and move and have our being in God, God alone, God who is who is all, who is in all, and whose character and attributes are displayed, his glory in the mirror of his creation. That's my eschatology. There are still a lot of details that I haven't figured out. But that I feel strong about. When you get locked into a chart, as so many people do, a certain chart of how it has to end, you miss all that. Like you get locked into the chart and saying, this has to happen, then after that, this, then. And, and what's central that we're trying to communicate here is that what's central to our view of the end times and of eschatology isn't a particular view of the millennium or tribulation or anything like that. Those are questions to ask, but that's not what's central. What's central is Jesus and justice, and resurrection, and communion. That's what's central. That's what is our hope. And that's why, actually, what I think reveals your true eschatology isn't your view of the millennium, really, and what really is most important to you. It's how you participate in the sacraments. And I'm not using sacraments in the Roman Catholic sense of things that actually convey grace, but rather things that are designated by God as particular holy things. that We often use the term ordinances for them, but I think there's a, a good place even for those of us who are Baptists to use the term sacraments. And when we're doing that, we're participating proleptically. We're participating in the now looking forward to Jesus's return. We're actually, if you think about it, when we participate in communion and in baptism, when we participate in the sacraments, that reveals how we look forward to the end of time. Because when we gather around the same table and we are baptized in the same way, in the same waters, so to speak, we are revealing 
the centrality of Jesus, and we're revealing justice. That is to say, all of us being treated equally, all of us being treated the same. When we talk about, in baptism, raised to the newness of life, well, that's looking forward to a physical resurrection. And in all of these, we're doing this together. I would argue that what you really think about the end of time at its most central is how you participate in the sacraments, where week by week, when we gather for the Lord's Supper, we turn our gaze from our screens and from our shoes, so to speak. We turn our gaze from shoegazing and screen gazing. We turn it away from those things, and we recognize we're part of a cosmic drama that's bigger than ourselves, and that God will one day fulfill in fullness what we're doing partially. I think the most important part of our eschatology is how we participate in the sacraments. And friends, when we warn against getting locked into a chart, don't hear us say, don't have an opinion, right? Don't lean a certain way when it comes to, you know, certain conversations and, and details of all of this. That's not true of, of either of us. Neither of us are what some people call pan-millennialist, right? Oh, it'll just all pan out in the end. No, we have opinions and positions. When we say don't get locked into a chart, really that's another way of saying don't make these details the focus, the center. Don't major in the timeline and the chronology and whatnot at the expense of focusing on and, and majoring in Jesus, the one who all of eschatology is focused on and looks towards. So let's think real quickly about what the historic Christian positions on eschatology are. And I think it's a lot simpler than we often think it is, because historically throughout most of church history, there were only two basic views. And I would say really there still are only two basic views. And it has to do with how we read Revelation chapter 20. It speaks there in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4 of a thousand years. And here's the key question. The crucial question is, does Jesus reign physically on the earth during that thousand years, or does he reign spiritually from the heavens during that thousand years? That's really the question, and that's really the central question. And we make it way more complex sometimes than it needs to be because that really is the central question. Now, here's the thing. There are Christians who have held both of those views at different times throughout church history and love Jesus and believe the Bible and believe that the Bible is God's inerrant word. Okay, so this is not an issue of faithfulness or unfaithfulness to God's truth. This is, is it Jesus reigning physically on the earth during that thousand years, or is it Jesus reigning spiritually from the heavens during that thousand years? Now, the first view is historically was called chiliasm. This is from the Greek word for thousand, okay? And this idea of chiliasm is simply the idea that Jesus reigns physically on the earth during the thousand years. And the other view is called a spiritual view. That's often what it was called as the spiritual view, which is simply that Jesus reigns spiritually from the heavens during this thousand years. And most of the people who held that also held that the thousand years is symbolic of a long time period and isn't exactly necessarily a thousand years. So those are really the two views in church history, chiliasm and the spiritual perspective. And in Chiliasm, you've got people in church history like Papias and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus of Lyon and Tertullian of Carthage, all these different ones, they're Chiliasts. That is to say, they believed that Jesus would reign physically upon the earth at some point in the future. Jesus would return, reign physically upon the earth. 
largely seems to be the predominant view of the first couple hundred years, first few centuries of the church, right? And so, therefore, I do disagree strongly with my with Bob Inc., my theological hero, who takes the strong stance of there's no basis, <laughs> there's no biblical basis for the Kiliest view, which I would have to disagree with him there. Even if he were right, there is a strong historical precedence, which is why now, if you kind of go back, if, if you want to hold to a view more like the earliest church before it gets real complicated, like Timothy's about to lay out, that's why a lot of times it's called a historical pre-millennialism, meaning that this was the way that the church, the early church thought about Jesus returning and then establishing a thousand-year reign on earth, right? So, Jesus comes back pre-millennium, pre-1,000 years. Now, on the other hand, what we have to say is that one of our heroes we talk about a lot, not just Bavink, but another hero, Augustine, Augustine of Hippo took a spiritual view. That is to say that the thousand years is symbolic and that it's Christ reigning spiritually from the heavens. But just in that, what I want you to see is how people that we respect have been in different places. Bavink and Augustine believing in the spiritual view, but Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and Papias and Polycarp taking the Kiliast or historic premillennial the view. Apostles. I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Making so, a joke. So it's it's just it's really you see the tension right there and how faithful people can hold either one of these. Now when we get into the 18th, 19th centuries, mm. it begins to get a little more complicated, and I wish it hadn't, because I, I like just settling for these two positions, yeah. but it gets a little more complicated. Was it the Germans' fault? Because usually a lot of what goes bad in theology is the Germans' fault. This is Americans. Oh. This is all Americans' fault, and, and a few British in there in, the, in, in that. So we can't even blame the German Jeez. theologians, because we can't blame Schleiermacher on this. Like, Schleiermacher, you can blame so much on Schleiermacher, but you can't blame Fred Frederick Schleiermacher for this. You've got to just, we've got to recognize it's our own people on this. So you've got, for example, a guy named Daniel Whitby, who in the 18th century, he kind of expanded this spiritual view. And he basically said, look, yes, Jesus is reigning spiritually from the heavens now, but there's going to be a time coming when he's going to be, his reign is even going to be more apparent. And there's going to be a thousand years in which Jesus will be reigning spiritually, but during that time, there's going to be this great golden age of gospel expansion, and then Jesus will actually return to earth at the end of that, so that becomes known as post-millennialism, because Jesus returns at the end. That's right. It's just a variant form of amillennialism, though, which is the spiritual view. We talked about the spiritual view. That becomes known as amillennialism, which is a terrible name because it means no millennium, which an amillennialist doesn't believe there's no millennium. No. They just believe that that millennium is Jesus reigning spiritually from the heavens yep. over a long period of time. So you've got this kind of modification of the spiritual view such that then you end up with that one splitting, we might say, into amillennialism and postmillennialism. But not to be outdone by the spiritual view, you have some folks on the Kilius view, the physical millennial view or premillennial view, who start to, in the 18th, 19th century, for instance, uh, like a, a man, Morgan Edwards, who separates what we call the rapture from 
the return of Christ, which we have always held to, right? Meaning that Jesus will take up his people into the air, right? He will he will snatch the church on earth from earth. And then after that, he will pour out his wrath on earth for, you know, a certain period, right? In this case, three and a half years. And then returns, returns after that. And so then, you know, you have another hundred-ish years later, a man by the name of John Nelson Darby, who develops this into a system. And in, in this system, the the rapture will happen seven years before Jesus returns, right? And so then you have this seven-year period of, you know, tribulation, but the church has been removed. Why? Because God has some work to do with Israel, his originally chosen people, and he removes the church from that so he can put Israel through this, this tribulation. This view becomes known as dispensational pre-millennialism. This is the view that I, I mentioned earlier that uh, Dallas Theological Seminary is, is known for. It is one of their doctrinal standards in order to teach there, not to go there as a student, but in order to teach there, right? You you have to hold not to just pre-millennial view, but a dispensational pre-millennialism. And, and so, as we mentioned earlier, there's a, a different version of premillennialism, typically referred to as historical premillennialism. I had a DTS prof who says that doesn't make any sense. He likes to call it covenantal premillennialism, whatever. He likes to make up new words just like Timothy does and try to get them into theological books, but it never works. So, this is a very different picture than the conversation that was being had in the first 18 centuries, first 17 centuries of the church, but certainly in the first handful of centuries where these two positions were kind of being worked out. And so, once again, there are faithful Christians that hold all of these positions we've lined out. There's not any one of these that we look at it and say, oh, if you believe that, then you are completely antithetical to God's Word. There are faithful, Jesus-loving Bible-believing people in all four of these different perspectives. So really, you end up with today four different perspectives, dispensational premillennialism, historical premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. But as I said, really, historically, there's two dominant views. Either Jesus reigns physically on earth during the millennium, or the millennium, the thousand years is symbolic, and Jesus is reigning spiritually from the heavens. And we won't get into this now, but this difference is truly a difference of how you think that certain parts of the Bible are read. Now, I will just say, here's where I stand on this particular issue. I could make from Scripture an equal case for amillennialism or historical premillennialism. I could make an equal case from Scripture on that. I have tried to become an amillennialist several times. I actually, in terms of my thinking, I prefer it. I like that idea of Jesus reigning from the heavens, this present reign of Christ. But I'll just admit, and just last year, I read through Revelation in the Greek text again, just trying to study it and think through, what do I think about this? And two things happen every time, even if I don't necessarily want them to. And listen, folks, I can, I can teach in what I teach, and I can do what I do, and I can preach at the church I preach in and hold either of these views. I'm not compelled to hold either of these views. But two things. One of them is there seems to me to be something different happening 
in Revelation 20 than has happened previous in the book of with the binding of Satan and all of those things going with the binding of Satan in that this seems to be a step beyond what has happened earlier in the book. There seems to be some unique thing that has taken place or is going to take place in Revelation chapter 20. That's coupled with, for me, the fact that I love the church fathers and I live deeply in the church fathers, especially the second and third centuries. And those church fathers were across the board. They were historical premillennialists. They weren't all millennialists, and they were historical premillennialists. I end up every time coming back to the same spot of I'm a historical premillennialist. I do think that the church will endure the time of tribulation, whatever that may be. But I also believe there will be a real physical reign of Jesus upon the earth for a thousand years that will be something that is not merely spiritual, but is Jesus actually physically upon the earth. I believe that he will do that. I think God is fulfilling in that way. God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham, but in a greater way, because God promised to the seed of Abraham all this land. But what will happen is the seed of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, Jesus, will reign physically, not just over the land in the Middle East. He will reign over the whole world during that time. And that's what I believe. Now, am I going to fight you over this? Nope, I'm not. Do I care about this enough that I'm going to write another book about it? No, certainly not. I wouldn't let him if he even thought about it. (laughs) I will send all Garrick my weird mail that I get in that. But that's where I stand on this particular issue. I'm in a very similar place. Life would be easier if I would kind of go over to the amillennial view. I don't say this to be snarky. It's kind of what all the cool kids hold to. Ever since Augustine and Calvin and, you know, other theological giants like Bavink, right? This is what all the cool folks believe, right? And I'm so formed, I'm so impacted. So much of my theology is shaped by the reformed tradition. And even in these last handful of years, more specifically, kind of the Dutch neo-Calvinism of of Bavink, that it would be fun and easy to hold to this view. It'd be fun and easy to come to a view of infant baptism, right? And these are these are areas that I've thought deeply about and done a lot of reading and can't, especially when it comes to the baptism, and I can't get there, at least right now. And a lot of times, the way I, to steal a joke from another professor of mine, a lot of my views when it comes to the detail, you know, the, the millennial views and whatnot, it really depends on what day we're talking about and who I'm listening to and who I'm reading, because I follow and read and respect brilliant men and women on kind of both sides of the issue. And so, I like to tell people that Monday through Friday, I am a historical premillennialist. On Saturday, I'm an amillennialist. And on Sunday, I rest. Regardless of where I land on this, I don't get excited about this. This isn't what excites me. What excites me is the church and the presence of Jesus in his church. What excites me, what brings tears to my eyes, is each week when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's what matters to me. That's what really gets me. And and, and a couple of weeks ago, I just, we were in church. And it just struck me a few weeks ago in this. And something struck me about eschatology and that. And I was just there in church. We were getting ready to do the Lord's Supper. And it struck me that for the first time in my life, I actually wanted Jesus to return. Mm. 
And I remember sure this was a kind of a moment of revelation for me, no pun intended on that, a moment of revelation of realizing I actually want Jesus to return. And I realized it was kind of a one of those moments of realizing that I was worried. I was worried about my kids and their future. I was worried about COVID. I was frustrated and broken over the racial injustice in our neighborhood, in our community, and in the world. And it struck me for the first time that any pleasure or anything I might long to do that would be upended by Jesus returning, that those would actually find their full fulfillment in his return. Like all the delights, all the pleasures, everything I I think, man, I'd like to do this. All those would be fully fulfilled when Jesus came. And all of these concerns, these worries, this brokenness all gets resolved. And it just was one of those moments of realizing that I'd carried for many years that sense of fear to do with the end times because of the movies and the things I'd been taught. And I realized this isn't something to fear. It's something to rejoice in. And the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion of that sacrament, every time we participate in that, that is a looking forward to and saying, I want Jesus to return. I want to have that banquet with him, (laughs) that meal with him. And I think sometimes if I'm really honest, that things have to get bad enough (laughs) for us to want something different. And if there's something that 2020 and 2021 bring us, maybe it's going to renew our longing for Jesus to return. Because frankly, most of us have been super comfortable, and no matter where you stand on political spectrums or anything like that, it's uncomfortable, and there's a lot of brokenness and a lot of limits, and that really triggered in me, and part of it just that brought it about as well is the first church I pastored, we got some news from that church, and the finest woman in that church who her and her husband mentored us in so many ways, I would not be in ministry today in the way I am apart from them and found out that she died of COVID and realizing, man, I really do want Jesus to return. I really do want that. And that's what should cause us to really get excited about eschatology is Jesus resolving all this brokenness, not not the charts, but the resolution that Jesus will bring. Of anything that we've ever talked about on this podcast, I, I, I believe those words I resonate with more than anything else in several different ways. 2020 and, and the early parts of 2021 have been the worst year of my life, so much so that losing a job doesn't even make the top five, you know, maybe down the list on if I make a top 10. And because of that, to my shame, because of that, this year when I use those words, come quickly, Lord Jesus, maybe one of the, f- the first time in my life where I haven't been simply paying lip service to it. And what you say about the Lord's Supper is the number one reason why I desire and, and want to have the conversation and want to push churches that I'm a part of to really consider taking communion every week so that every week, I, my family, my church family, can spend time thinking on and looking forward to the 
the banquet, the coming banquet, so that in that, focusing on on Christ and, and His coming might stir us to a deeper love for Him here. And I think this feeling we have of wanting to get out of the current situation, every human being feels that. It's not just Christians that feel that. We feel that. But the world feels that too. And you see that clearly that REM, they feel that, that sense, that need, that desire to get out of the world as it is. But you have, it's the end of the world as we know it, and it's a staring deep inside. But even later, I think of their what I would consider to be their last great album. It's their next to the last studio album, but it's Accelerate in 2008. There's a song, the song Accelerate. Here's some of the lyrics of it, and I think it's fascinating as we think through this. It's, where is the ripcord, the trapdoor, the key? Where is the cartoon escape hatch for me? The city's burning. It's like it's ready to explode. Accelerate to make it slow. Make it go. I'm incomplete. I'm incomplete. Where do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? Accelerate. Go faster to make it slow down. Make it go. I am incomplete. Wow. We know this world is incomplete. We know it. But all the world around us can see is a longing for an escape hatch. And that escape hatch may be, we're going to make the world better. That escape hatch may be, I'm just going to look deeper in myself. There's a lot of different escape hatches. That escape hatch may be hedonism of I'm going to find pleasure in whatever it may be that I I find pleasure in. But all those are just escape hatches. But what we have in Christ as Christians is true and authentic, confident hope. We don't need an escape hatch because our Savior, our God, our Rescuer, He's coming. (laughs) He's coming to us. We don't need an escape hatch out of here. Rather, we await the coming of Jesus Christ and for him to make all things right and new, to bring justice, to resurrect all of his people physically and to bring justice and judgment and to raise his people to communion together. That's what we look forward to. And that is a much deeper and better hope than the end of the world as we know it, looking inside, and I feel fine. Christian eschatology is not simply about the end of suffering of this world. It includes that, but it is a looking forward to an eternal happiness, which is a word that many theologians have used in the last 2,000 years, an eternal happiness, an eternal blessedness, an eternal glory.
Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And thank you so much to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com to find more theology and more apologetics resources. And also, if you're interested in studying apologetics with me, I want to invite you to take a look at the apologetics programs at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree on campus or online, I would be so glad to have you as a guest at our next preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu slash visit. And also, if you're interested in a podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on Three Chords in the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. There's way more jobs out there, I mean, as, as speaking as an unemployed person. And way nicer people. Yeah. <laughs> you should probably edit, I should probably you should probably edit that, that yeah. when you get there.